everybody, and welcome back for another episode of The Biz. And today, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to have you here from Celia Moore. Hi, Celia. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's wonderful to see you today from London, uh, of all places. Celia is a professor of organizational behavior at Imperial College um, Business School. And prior to joining Imperial, she held positions at Bocconi University in Milan, which I bet was gorgeous, and London Business School, where she was on the faculty there for nine years. She's also been a visiting scholar at Harvard Business School and a fellow of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University. She's currently an academic fellow of the Ethics and Compliance Initiative and sits on the UK's Banking Standards Board Assessment Steering Committee. That's a lot. <laughs> Celia's teaching sits at the intersection of leadership and ethics, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited to get the chance to talk to her today. And she is particularly interested in supporting individuals to enact their moral agency responsibly. She's worked with several organizations on how to support more ethical behavior at work, including the Financial Conduct Authority, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, the National Health Service, the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna, Austria, the Brookings Institute in Washington, DC, and several major financial institutions. Celia's so research focuses on how organizations unintentionally facilitate morally problematic behavior and on how to resist these consequences. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about today. Her work has been published in the Academy of Management Journal, Organization Science, Journal of Applied Psychology, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Academy of Management, and many others. Her work has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Fast Company, as well as NPR, the CBC, and the BBC. Celia, it's a true pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Cindy. So Celia, it is just wonderful to have you here with us today, even though you're in London and, and I'm here in the US. And as we all know, we're in this time of, of COVID. So Usually you all are a predictor for where we are headed. At least that's been the pattern for the last nine months or so. Tell us a little bit about what's going on over there right now. And we're taping this in, in November. So we're about to go back into lockdown towards the end of this week, um, which is the right decision. And it should have been enacted a few weeks ago. Mm. Um, but I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of pandemic fatigue here as there is everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's more challenging as people enter the, the winter months. Um, luckily, the UK is a relatively temperate climate. Um, I'm more concerned, I'm Canadian, and I'm more concerned about my mom in Toronto making it through the winter when, you know, it's a lot harder to socialize yeah. outside yeah. um, than it is in London. But yeah. um, I'm hopeful that 2021 will bring We'll bring better news for all I, of us. I think we all are. Yes, um, hopefully we will. We will have a whole different year, uh, but there's no there's there's no lack of I should say ethical issues um, that have arisen. I would say in COVID and some of the really hard decisions that we that leaders have had to make, and there's really no no roadmap for making them. So that, that kind of brings us back to the topic for today, which is talking about business ethics and where it's been, where it is now, but most importantly, where it's headed into the future. Um, 
one thing I do think is that business and government are going to have to start working more closely together to solve some of these really big problems that we do have in front of us right now. And, and the whole thought of talking about where should ethics be headed in the future came to me when I revisited Andy Stark's article in the Harvard Business Review that he wrote about 25, 26 years ago. And um, at that time, uh, he had identified the problem with the way business ethics was being taught as too general, too philosophical, and um, just not practical. And so the question I have for you to start with is whether or not you think those are still problems today, or have we moved beyond that? I think definitely the way ethics is taught in business schools has changed dramatically. Um, I know many peers in many of the institutions that your listeners would be aware of. Um, we came up at the same time, and there's really been a shift in the last 15 years from a more normative approach to teaching ethics to a more descriptive approach to teaching ethics. Mm -hmm. So normative ethics is really focused on what ought to be the case, what is right, um, and there is really has been a pushback about teaching ethics that way because students receive that as as impositional on their values right so the shift in the last 15 years towards teaching ethics in a more descriptive way which is more about describing the world as it is and then giving students the tools they need in order to enact the values that they arrive in the classroom with responsibly mm -hmm. is is an approach that is much more well received by students and therefore effective i i, I think i hope mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and i think it's just more more practical right for them to be able to actually um think about how am I going to apply this uh, to my business life when I get out? And to your point, with this sense of empowerment, right? They walk in with their own sense of thoughts and values. And the, and the question is, don't tell me what's right. Tell me what I need to do to figure out how to think through a difficult situation if I face it. And what what might those be, you know, and, and kind of preparing them in that way. Do you do very much in terms of experiential learning in your in your teaching so that they can experience learning about um, business ethics. I know that some of the universities, uh, at least here uh, in the US have done things like give groups of students um, some seed money and ask them to go, you know, start a business and then track through what some of their ethical issues are that they have to face, um, as well as you know the financial and the legal and, and everything else. Have, have you found that approach to be effective at all? Well, I, I do a lot of case teaching, uh -huh. right? Which for ethics is is valuable because it requires you to think through different moral problems. It does. Um, and then uh, I teach it in a very in a very proactive way, so that students have to get up and give speeches to boards of directors oh, about yeah. difficult things or. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also done simulations and experiments in the classroom mm -hmm. to show people what leads individuals to make better or worse choices. Yeah. So under time pressure or um, with different ways of conceiving of morally meaningful decisions. Um, so I've put people under performance pressure and then That's shown great. When people are under strong pressure to perform. They make worse decisions. Right. So less optimal. Decisions. Right, right, right. And they have to experience that for themselves. So they actually, in a safe environment, get to at least experience what it's going to be like when they hit the real world and hopefully be better prepared. 
That's great. So one of the things that you recently did um, and published some work on was in the behavioral ethics and kind of the social science perspective. And I think folks like you and Anton Brunzel and Linda Trevino have just added so much in that space. But you recently published an article in the Annual Review of Organizational Psychology and Organizational Behavior with David DeCremer, and it was titled Toward a Better Understanding of Behavioral Ethics in the Workplace. And I was looking at that article and I really liked the way you talked about business ethics on three different levels. It was intrapersonal, interpersonal, and organizational. So could you share with us a little bit about what your findings were um, from that article and what some of the examples are at each of those levels? So, I mean, it was a review article. So we were overviewing other people's research. That wasn't primary research of our own. But that framework um, is one way of thinking through what the, what the um, additions to our field of knowledge have been in the last decade. Yes. So intrapersonal research focuses on what happens inside someone's head. So mm -hmm. that has mainly focused on um, uh, emotions, cognitions, and identity and how those three things play into how people make decisions, right? So there's a lot of work in cognitive psychology um, and, and, and uh, social psychology that really looks at like, if you are confronted with situation X, what right. do you think, how do you feel, and how is your identity activated in a way that then influences the decisions that you come to? Right. Right. So there's been a, there's been, for me, some of the work that I'm most interested in right now is the interaction between emotions and cognitions oh, and how yeah. when we are, um, when certain emotions are activated, we are more likely to think about a morally meaningful decision in one way versus another way. So if we're afraid, right, fear is a really powerful motivator. Yes. We're a lot more likely to make morally problematic decisions because Fear activates our desire to hunker down and self-protect, mm -hmm. right? Rather than look yeah. outside and and think about what's in the common good, in the interest of the common good. It, right. it makes us think in a more in a more self-interested way. So that's what we mean by intrapersonal. Got it. Interpersonal is um, either in a group or dyadically, right? What happens when two people get together or two or more people get together? How do their group how does group process group dynamic right. then influence um what ends up happening so that's when you look at things like speaking up right mm -hmm. so what about a group process or a group um dynamic affects people so that they either feel able to speak up willing right. to speak up or not right, right? what causes right. silence so that's right. that's the research on interpersonal and then the organizational level is what are the um, procedural, um, systemic, um, environmental um, conditions that either create to support more ethical decision making or can sadly uh, uh, undermine. Yeah. 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 Did that piece of research or any of your follow on? Um, I, so that was sort of in a compilation and a summary of the contributions that have been made to the field of ethics by this, this new line of thinking, which is so important. If you can't understand why people are doing certain things, then you can't mitigate, you know, and plan for how do I, now that I know the root cause, how do I design a system that's going to counteract those 
kind of natural reactions in people. Did any of your um, follow-on research since then uh, uh, explore what some of those things are that, that individuals can do to perhaps counteract the intra-personal uh, dynamics or the inter-personal dynamics to help them speak up more? So um, one of the most uh, exciting pieces of research that I'm doing right now is on how people experience moral distress at work. Uh, so that's uh, people experience stress at work for all sorts of reasons, right? Sure. They've got too much to do, or they don't have childcare, or they're worried that they're going to lose their job. Like there's all sorts of reasons for stress. Yeah. Health, health concerns. Oh, huge. Um, Especially now. Yeah, exactly. Um, no. but when people experience stress at work because of either decisions or contexts or um, uh, uh, behaviors that they observe that are morally problematic, morally difficult, mm -hmm. it's a different type of stress. Mm -hmm. It's a type of stress because for all individuals, our moral identity, our identity of ourselves as moral people, which almost everyone, except for possibly psychopaths, experience quite acutely, right? Everyone believes they are a moral person. Yeah, almost right. everyone believes they are a strongly moral person. And that's usually a, an aspect of our identities that's very central to who we are. Got it. Um, so when that's threatened, right, when we when we feel like we need to make a decision that's actually not, that's counter to that identity, uh -huh. that causes a lot of anxiety for us. So I've been exploring how people work through those kinds of um, uh, situations. And what, what I found really exciting in, in this, this is very early stage research. Yeah, sure. That there's sort of four reactions that people have to these, these complicated situations. The first one is just complicity, right? You're asked to um, misrepresent COVID statistics or hide the fact that there's been a COVID case in your office so that people keep coming to work, right? Right. Um, complicity would mean uh, you just do what your boss says and, and, you know, follow through. Uh -huh. Um, then there's avoidance, right? Uh, I don't really want to do this. I'm not going to think about it. I don't really want to do this. I'm going to get, I'm going to get approval from someone else. I don't really want to do this. I'm just going to wait until the problem goes away. Right, right. Right. That's a pretty common reaction to a stressful situation. And then the other two are more proactive. So the third one is what I'm right now calling collaboration which is, I find this problematic. I don't know what to do. I'm going to seek advice. I'm going to right. seek additional um, input. You know, I don't really want to hide this COVID case. So I'm going to ask my um, peer or my boss's boss or what Linda Trevino would call skip level supervisor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's collaboration. Finding a way to not have to enact the decision that is, that is problematic. And then the fourth is defiance. Just like, nope, I'm not going to do that. It is too inconsistent with my values. I'm not going to do that. Um, what we find, although we didn't trust that specific decision, I was just giving an example, is that people who choose the first two tactics, either complicity or avoidance, uh -huh. report lower levels of um, uh, report lower levels of life satisfaction and higher intent to turnover in their organization. Whereas people mm -hmm. who make the latter two choices report higher levels of life satisfaction and a lower intent to turnover and, and also a higher engagement with their work. Mm -hmm. We tend to be afraid of people who are going to defy authority or just 
live by their values no matter what. Right. But actually, these are the people that are truly engaged yeah. and um, are, are happier in life. Yeah. Right? More committed to their organizations and better off in life. Right, right. How interesting. Wow. It just really shows you how psychology plays such an important part in decision making for individuals because you you were just referencing about how the moral identity is so important for, you know, almost all of us. And that's true. I mean, I think people still have this misconception that people who do unethical things are bad people. And we all know that most, there are a few psychopaths in the world, of course, but most aren't. They, they find themselves in a situation where they make the wrong decisions, but that doesn't necessarily make them bad people. And I think that dissonance between, you know, making an unethical decision and, and still thinking of somebody as a, as a a good person um, is still hard for people to wrap their heads around, right? Uh, that bad decisions don't necessarily make bad people, that good people can make bad decisions. So you also recently published an article uh, in Forbes that was titled, Are Ethical Leaders Good for Business? And, you know, no surprise, the conclusion was, yes, they're good for business. <laughs> but let's get behind that a little bit. So what, what do you see that are some of the specific uh, benefits for businesses when leaders do make ethical choices? And how do you effectively deal with a situation when you do have a leader that isn't making ethical choices? It's, an over, it's overly simplistic, right? So while I, of course, believe that ethical leaders are good for business, right? And I can find evidence to support that belief. Yes. I don't think it's, it's um, uh, consistently always true. There's lots of unethical decisions that can be very good for business, at least in the short term. Right, 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 right. And you can make a lot more things, profit. Exactly. So one of the things I think we need to be a lot more um, candid about and willing to admit is that a lot of morally really problematic decisions make lots of profit, right? And until we sort of concede that and can sit with that, I think it's even harder to, to um, um, make true sustained progress. So when I make an argument that being, making ethical decisions is good for business, I am making a long-term argument inter, yeah. in the greater good, Yeah. right? Yeah. So you can think about something like the defeat devices of Volkswagen, mm -hmm. right? That served Volkswagen very well in the short and yeah. immediate term, intermediate yeah. term. Right. right. It's only after it was discovered that it became a less um, profitable decision. Yeah. But actually, for many years, it served that organization very well mm -hmm. and served many of the individuals making those decisions extremely well. Right. 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 So um, ethical decisions are only good for business if we're thinking about good for business in the long term for society. Yeah. Um, any given situation can often be gained an advantage from behaving less than morally optimally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's almost as though the best leaders, I think today are able to hold that tension, if you will, in, in, in their hands and make decisions for the now, right? Um, as opposed to just thinking about what's going to get me the most, you know, profits or the most sales for the, for the company. They're also thinking about the moral and ethical implications of the decision they're making. They're able to hold that tension together and make a decision 
in the immediate term that's going to be good both in the short term, in the medium term, and in the long term, um, almost because they've widened their perspective beyond just looking at what's going to be, you know, bust from a profit perspective, let's say, which, which kind of takes me right into my, the next question I wanted to ask you, which was about the business roundtables uh, pronouncement in um, 2019. So about a year old now, but when they changed their view of what the, the main purpose of a corporation was, um, and they had a statement that existed for almost 25 years that, you know, was all about, you know, sh the, the shareholder reigns supreme and it is all about the bottom line. And they recently changed that, as you know, um, into this much broader stakeholder theory and, and in my mind, kind of talk about this, this tension and holding it together so that companies should, should look out for the benefit of all of their stakeholders, including their suppliers and their customers and their employees and the communities that they serve. So how do you see that playing into um, the article that we were just talking about, about whether you know ethical leaders are good for business and whether or not that really does mean only in the long term, or could it also mean in the medium and short term now under the way the business roundtable is thinking about it? Uh, so... I mean, I think in the medium and short term, that requires more courage. Yeah. Right. It requires more courage to hold the moral ground in the immediate term. Yeah, sure does. Um, because the, the difficulty is it is often more expedient right. right, to make money in the short term with morally problematic behavior. Yeah. So the idea of courage I find really interesting when I teach about the, the old um, case and I have to teach about this old case because there just are not enough examples uh, to use more recent ones of Johnson and Johnson and Johnson and Johnson pulling all of Tylenol off the shelves when, right. when, the, when the cyanide poisonings occurred, right? Yes. You see what happened to their share price, right? right? And for several months, it, it just tanked. They right. lost all of their market share. It goes straight down. But then within, I think, nine months, it was back up to exactly where it was before. Yeah. And not only that, the goodwill that Johnson & Johnson generated from that decision lasted them like 35 years. That's right. In almost in uncountable way. Right. 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 But to be that CEO holding the ground yeah. while they were losing market share and right. stock price required standing his ground in a way that that took some real, real. stamina and courage. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that's, it's not, there's no magical solution that allows you to like make the most profit for all the stakeholders in the short, medium and long term. There's yeah. always going to be trade-offs. Yes. Um, but I do truly deeply believe that, that that courage benefits not only society, of course, but, but businesses in the long term. Mm -hmm. So I, with that in mind and knowing that courage is, is something that you're curious about, as am I, have you done any research or do you plan to do any uh, about where leaders who are able to exemplify that kind of courage get it? So um, I think there, there's several interventions that have been shown to work. Um, a lot of them are based on, on thinking about a long-term view, like thinking about legacy. 
Um, the other main intervention that I think has real promise, especially in the, in the short term, is finding ways that organizations systemically can create peers who are willing to partner, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we know from the research on minority descent and speaking up that one of the reasons why it occurs so as, as rarely as it does, not that it's rare, but as rarely as it does, yeah. is because people feel very vulnerable holding a moral ground by themselves and they believe themselves often wrongly to be the only one who wants to hold the moral ground. Right. But actually people just don't like going first. Right. <laughs> they don't want to be first. Goes first. Right. Then lots of people will follow because yes. being moral is really important to us. Mm. So it's how do we create the conditions so that no one feels they have to go first? Got it. Right. 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 That they can go together, that we can all go, can go together. together. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's, so really that's where I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of room in organizations to both like procedurally and systemically create climates and opportunities for peers to come together to make the right decisions together. Because as yeah. soon as we're not alone, right. we're, we're much more likely to follow the right path. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so I've got to ask you a question about the future now. So we've talked a lot about the the improvements that the behavioral uh, ethics and the psychology and all of that has really brought to the field. And we're at a really pivotal moment, I would say, right now in our world, and the future seems to be coming at us so fast. So sitting here today, if you were to think about kind of three words to describe where you think business ethics needs to go in the, the future, uh, in the next 25 years, what would that, what would those words be for you? So this was, this was a really hard question to think about. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling with what the final words ought to be, but I, I think one of them is evidence-based. That's good. Yeah, I right? agree. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the more behavioral evidence we can generate and marshal that shows us how to best support good decisions, right? Um, we will be in in better shape. Yeah. Um, the the second is global. Right. I think the pandemic provides an opportunity to uh, to to really show us the value yes. of thinking globally. Right. Um, and, and the third is cooperative, yeah. right? We're only really going to get out of the, the pandemic, climate change, all of the things that are, that are um, uh, bearing down on us hard, mm -hmm. um, systemic racism. Like mm -hmm. if we find ways to cooperate and um, I think one of the one of the negative things that's happened in the last decade is increased polarization. Yeah, right. Um, right. And to get out of the messes that we are in and sliding down farther in, I mean, I'm optimistic about the future, but um, I think it will require us to really learn how to cooperate. Yeah, and, and sort of like I was saying before, across institutional lines, like business and government cooperating together in ways that they never have before you know, and bringing NGOs along with them and, and figuring out what role does everybody play and let's go at this collectively and cooperatively to solve these really large problems that we're facing globally. So yeah, and use evidence to figure that out. Those are great words. <laughs> I like it. 
All right. This has been fabulous, Celia. I want to end on something fun that I that I like to ask everyone that I talk to. Um, we've all been inside a lot more because of COVID. Well, now that we can't go outside as much because it's getting colder. Um, but with some extra time on your hands, have you watched anything or read anything or listened to any good podcasts that have been fun, but also have embedded within them just some like just raging ethical dilemmas that, that made it interesting? So um, a, a book I read that has really helped me through the pandemic is Rebecca Solnit's um, A Paradise Built in Hell. Uh -huh. And it's a it's a nonfiction book about um, about several different natural disasters and what occurred in their aftermath. Wow. And she writes about how the human condition, right? Um, we fear that natural disasters will lead to selfish behavior and looting, mm -hmm. but actually, the evidence is that in after natural disasters, humans come together because that's how we survived all of this all of these things before. That's how London survived the blitz. It's how Mexico City survived the earthquake. You know, it's how, it's how um, uh, San Francisco survived the great fire. So it, humans come together um, in times of crisis. And so that, that book gave me great hope. Yes. Um, watching, um, I enjoy uh, drama that comes from, um, uh, morally complicated contexts. So you think about the, the series that have been most uh, influential in the last 15 years, they are all, um, not all, many of them are about um, uh, social environments that have their own moral codes. Yes. Right? So the Sopranos was about the mafia. Mm -hmm. That is a context with its own social code that's different to ours. Right. Right. Um, the Wire was about uh, uh, drug dealers, right, which has their own moral code. Um, Deadwood was about the Wild West. So going somewhere where there was no laws and creating mm -hmm. a society law from scratch. Or The Handmaid's Tale, right, creating and then the resistance against a moral code that was really, that is really oppressive. Yeah, right. right. So all of those are sort of the kinds of things that I like to watch. How do people come together? Yes, and create um, a, a moral community, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's drug dealers, right? One mm -hmm. of the things I loved about The Wire was that there was a really strong moral code, right? Yes, it, not everyone wasn't bad to each other because because the system doesn't work then. Right, right. People were helping each other and protecting each other, and yeah. you know. Um, my, my poor middle child was almost named Wallace after a very, very <laughs> altruistic teenage drug dealer um, because I was, so, I was so interested in that. Yeah, so that, 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 that one was sort of like Breaking Bad. I don't know if you watched that. Yeah, that yes, that's another that one. Same thing, sort of, oh, you know. It's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, very interesting. <laughs> well, Celia, this has been really fantastic and I appreciate your time very much. Great insights uh, and some really great, 
thought provoking research that you've done and that you are doing. Um, more power to you. Thank you for bringing the helping to bring the field of business ethics to where it is today and for sharing with, with us where you think it needs to go in the future as well. I think they were um, very insightful points. So well, thanks so much for having me, Cindy. Yeah, you bet. Best to you in these 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 times. And um, I love the book that you mentioned about the way we react to natural disasters and the hope that that creates. And that's a great note to end on. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Bye, Cindy. Bye.